What an exciting thing it's been to walk through this beautiful book. Hey, thank you. I agree with you, though. And here we are now in this crazy part where we have watched, if you think about it, we have watched the Lord now validate um, validate Aaron's ministry, the calling that he has. Uh, this came last week, if you remember, from the idea of the rod budding and flourishing, producing nuts. It was, it was, the fruit was nuts. And, uh, and from that, if you remember, the good side of it was, was that this calling that God had placed on this, this beautiful man, uh, failing like the rest of us, still very human, still very weak, uh, still, though, with a great calling on his life. Uh, God not only validates that then, but then he turns now to this chapter and shows us there's a responsibility to that validation. Everyone, and by the way, the Bible makes clear, if you've said yes to Jesus, you have a calling on your life. God has placed a calling, and it is bespoke. It is unique to every one of you. I can't have your calling, you can't have mine. It is a recipe of the gifts that he tailor-makes for you, spiritually, with the person he's tailor-making you to be, with the, if you think about the infinite facets of Jesus, that the more we are together, the more facets of Christ you see. And with that, if you consider that what God is intending to do is show you in this chapter, I am convinced through principle as well as through simple Scripture, the gift of God's calling on your life. So let's go to the Lord right in prayer. And let's watch God's scripture explode before us. Lord, it's a beautiful transition, but a challenge nonetheless. We know in the last chapter, nearly 15,000 people lay dead from the rebellion of what you had intended for the infrastructure you had created and the people you had placed there. And Lord, we know so many people want to argue and talk and divide Christians about the area of your sovereignty. And yet, Lord, the area they seldom speak about is the one you spend the most time on in your sovereignty. And that is the calling of Christians. I can't pick being a pastor, but thank you that I get to be one. And Lord, in that I pray right now, that you would do something so beautiful, so rich, so profound in every one of our hearts, Lord, that your scripture would burst open and explode before all of us and that we would, every one of us in here, that we would get it, that we would genuinely, wholeheartedly get it, that we would intellectually understand, that we would understand in our hearts what changes you want to make and what choices need to be made. And that today, Lord, in this beautiful chapter, you would show us today how to take that next step forward with you. I pray for every person, if there be any or many in this room, who have yet to say yes to the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and resurrected. Today, let, be, let today be the day of their salvation. I pray today, Lord, for every person who is struggling that today they would find their strength and victory in you. And I pray today for those, Lord, who are growing and grown in you, that today would be the day they discover their calling, that today would be the day that they say, oh, I, t- I said yes to Jesus, not just his 
saviorship and his lordship. But today, I said yes to him as my commander, <clears throat> as my boss, <clears throat> and yes to the calling he placed on my life. So, Lord, have your way now, we pray. Thank you for the sheer magnificent blessing of this time. Redeem every second, I pray. And may we have so much fun in your scripture now. Oh Lord, please fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that I would spill you all over everybody in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Chapter 18, verse 1 starts with this. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and to all the needs of the tabernacle. They shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die, they and you also. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Therefore, I'm sorry, and it says then, verse 6, important, Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. As we begin this chapter, it is important to note that God never gives authority without responsibility. God has no interest in you becoming a horrible tyrant a nasty, rotten person just for the sake of telling other people what to do. As a matter of fact, Peter will teach us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that when we as older, when he talks to the older people, he doesn't call them the leaders or those with a badge or a title, but in 1 Peter chapter 5 he says that as a fellow elder, he exhorts them as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glories that would follow to shepherd the flock of God. Serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, literally not with a twisted arm, but willingly or readily. Oh, not for selfish or dishonorable gain, but rather eagerly. And not as being lords over the flock, but being examples. And I love that. And he says, and then when the chief shepherd appears, we know he's, that no man on earth is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And when he appears, we'll receive a crown of life that does not fade away. Peter taught us, by the way, that any person who is to be profiled in any manner is to be a servant, not a celebrity. 
not to lord over, but rather to row under. And in that, it's important to note that even here as we turn to our text in the book of Numbers, there is a responsibility that comes with this validation of calling. Last week, that Aaron's rod had budded, produced almonds, ripe almonds, ready to eat. And then that staff was put in the ark, ultimately. I'm assuming it had to get broken to be put in there. Hebrews teaches us that there were three things that sat in that ark, a pot of that manna that had fallen from the sky, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that had budded. And here we have clear challenge and, by the way, the commission. Notice in these first verses, by the way, and I'll point these things out if you will with me. Uh, notice, by the way, in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, the first thing he talks about is the honor of the house and the piety of the priesthood. He tells us in verse 1, You and your fathers, father's house, shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary, and you and your son shall bear the iniquity associated with the priesthood. You need to recognize that it will never work for us to do an us and them thing in regards to the dishonor of Christianity. It's so easy to say, oh, that's that group, that crazy group that hangs from the chandeliers, or that crazy group that wears a robe, or that crazy group that's getting, you know, that's getting really liberal about their approach to Scripture, or that group over there that has... And, and I'll agree with you that those things are crazy, but if they're outside of Scripture, if they're against Scripture, but please hear me. God's looking for the Nehemiahs that will not just say, oh God, don't fry them or fry them for your own name's sake, but God, forgive us for we all have sinned. To conclude us, because there isn't more than one bride, there's one bride and we get to be a part of it. And understand whether you know it or not, the moment you call yourself Christian, you know out there people are looking and the people that are looking have their own preconceived notions about what Christianity is that is more for the most likely going to be something dishonorable. And do you have any form of respect for a person who complains about a problem but doesn't get up to do anything about it? You are, beloved, part of the church. And if you really think that there are some problems out there, be different and be bold about it. If the only people who are profile are absolute nutters out there, well then be someone better and be profile with it. Let the world see that real Christians love other people. Real Christians, strangely enough, love each other, love their families, don't get divorced, don't run off and do wacky stuff, but rather instead seek to be things that the world craves but doesn't have the strength like committed, faithful, full of integrity. The world, by the way, will be governed without a relationship, and we've talked about this before, that laws are set without relationship. The only way to enforce them is through punishment. But when you have a relationship, laws are established in a matter of protocol and conscience now. Love should be the motivator. We should never be driven by a fear of punishment because we should have a higher calling to actually follow in light of that conscience. And here he tells us, that the honor of the house and the honor or dishonor of the house and the priesthood will be yours to bear. In the book of of Revelation, it tells us that he's made us all kings and priests under him. Beloved, like it or not, you are a priest. You will never be the high priest. That's Jesus. We're aware of that. Hebrews has made that that clear. But please hear me. As we look at this in principle, 
Here's the good news. For all the things he calls us to do and to do properly, he gives us four gifts that will be clear in this chapter. Four beautiful gifts to fulfill that calling. But let me start with this. Well, what is the responsibility? What do we do if we're going to do it right? Wouldn't that make sense to ask? If we know we go, oh my goodness, what a herd of elephants to think we have to stand and change the dishonor of the word Christianity. First of all, let's just nip something in the bud from the get-go. There are some people that are going to hate Jesus, and if they're going to hate Jesus, they should hate Christianity, shouldn't they? If what it really means is to be like Jesus, how can we be like Jesus and be loved by people who hate Jesus? That seems strange to me. And I've been there. I know what that's like. A long time ago, the first time we had come and visited England, and and since I was like a a little lad, and out here I'd come, I was very American when I'd gone there. It was a New Year's Eve, I believe it was, oh gosh, maybe 1999 or maybe, I don't know, it it was quite a while ago. And I remember it was New Year's Eve, and I I'm just wanted to go out and share Jesus. It's my first time to London. Oh, I just couldn't wait. Of course, New Year's Eve. That's the day to share Jesus in Piccadilly Square or Oxford Circus, right? Everybody's like got whistles, and they're drunk out of their mind. They're totally pickled. This isn't the day. You're like, hi, can I talk to you about our... And they're blowing these whistles in your face, right? So here I am a bit dejected. I'm sitting on the tube. It's turning over midnight at this point, and I'm just feeling sorry for myself because, how, of course, how sad that is. And as that has the case, these two people walk in, and they were military guys from America. And they're all drunk, and they're spilling their beers and everything all over the people, inside the tube, on the people. And, of course, there's people like just brushing, trying to brush it off, trying to look like they aren't completely flabbergasted by it. And there's this guy next to me, and he's just a guy that looks like you'd fear him in rugby. And he's a big man. His, his face looks kind of like Seal, if those of you are familiar with the performer Seal. So he has that kind of that face, and he was just very serious. And he looked, and he's, and he's saying, look at me, just look at me, just look at me. And he's like chanting this, begging for somebody, one of those two guys to look at him. And you just know he was ready to launch on those guys. And there I am just trying to sit there, be all nice. And the person next to me looks at me and goes, oh, Americans. And I said, oh. I know. (laughs) So I know the challenge, how that works. But if people go, oh, Christians, can you say, I'm one? See what happens. Because most of the time, if they're saying that to you, they actually think you're pretty cool. And you're about to blow out their paradigm the moment you're like, but I love Jesus. What? The reason you're so nice? Yes, that's the reason. Because I would have punched you in the face. But now I love Jesus. Maybe that's not your approach, but you get the idea. So follow me on this. There's some very, very clear protocol that God gives of what it looks like to be a priest in the proper tongue. Uh, proper tense, proper tone. And take a look at it with me. And by the way, it's pretty simple. Verse 5 is one of the things. And we'll see it in verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, it says, you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar. In verse 7, it says, you and your sons then will attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil. There you go. Did you get that? This is what a priest looks like. In the simplest sense, he represents man to God and God to man. It's that simple. But let me show you how that looks practically. First of all, the role in the sanctuary. If you were around when we did Exodus, if you remember, we even had these really cool mock-ups of the three pieces of furniture. Do you remember those? Okay, well then help me out. What are those three pieces of furniture in the holy place? Table of showbread. Beautiful. How about over here? 
excellent lamp stand. It's like, it's like charades. She's going like this. I'm going, that's the, okay, the cloud of happiness. Okay, yeah, so there's, okay, so there's the menorah. There's the lampstand. There is the table of showbread. And then what's right here? Excellent, the altar of incense. Now, those are going to be the fundamental areas in the sanctuary. We call it the Kodeshim, or the holy place. And then there's the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, those three items, each one speaks, by the way. We have the bread of life we have here. We have the light of the world we have here. And we have the answered prayer that that is lifted here. And every one of those points us to Jesus. Now, the idea is simple. Where our satisfaction in life is found, where our guidance and clarity is found, and where our values and prayers are lifted to. Our dreams, our aspirations, our ambitions. And do you realize what God does in the sanctuary is he basically goes sifting for idols. You aware of that? Because anything in our life that replaces Jesus to be our life, anything that really replaces Jesus to be our guidance, and anything that replaces Jesus for our dreams and aspirations, I want to be like, I want to get, I want to obtain, but we won't go to Jesus for it, it's an idol. And God wants to make that really clear. And as a priest, one of the beautiful things is we get to show, and listen, I've had this and this and this elsewhere. I've had all the money, I had more money than I could spend, I had more stuff than I could possibly want, and I had more popularity than I could ever possibly want, and I was the most miserable I'd ever been. And then I found Jesus, and everything changed. And I stand as testimony. There is nothing like finding satisfaction in Christ. There is nothing like it. And you watch people go from relationship to relationship. And and Christians can do this too. Because what can happen is, we'll use Jesus as the side order, but not the main dish. It's kind of like, I want happiness and peace and joy and a side order of Jesus to get there. Now listen, either Jesus is, hear me on this, either Jesus is the end or he's the means to the end. And that's going to be the difference between a content human being or not. If Jesus is your end, Everything you're looking for, you'll find in abundance. If Jesus is your means to the other thing, well, then you're going to have to leave him behind when you think you've got it. And that's a very janky, wonky relationship. So here we are. You have to play, you you run the role of this. But then beyond that, if you remember, that was where the ark was, where the blood was applied. And understand, this is what it looks like to be a real priest. We represent. Where I came from, he used to say, if you ain't representing, you perpetrating. And listen, it's like we talk about what Jesus, and we live out, and we tell him. We do both. That he really is life, and he really is satisfaction. And he really is where we get our guidance. And he really is the answer to every prayer. Jesus isn't the one who gives me peace. Jesus is my peace. Jesus isn't the place where I go to find love. Jesus is love. Jesus isn't the one that I go to find hope in. He's the one that I have hope. He is my hope. And there's the difference. When I get him at the destination, he's not my bus. He's the thing on the front of the bus if the bus is right that says, Jesus, get me to Jesus, and I'm good. And that's what a priest should be. A priest should be someone who, by the way, when it comes to representing God to man, represents what it means to be satisfied in him full of him, clear in your direction. Now look at, I may not know where we're going, but I know where I'm going. (laughs) And if that confuses you, that's cool. In the end of it all, even with this particular fellowship, 
from the beginning, there, I mean, if you know, that there's a, point, there's a part of me that gets really administrative, and I haven't wanted it because I wanted to make sure that I love you guys. That's definitely my first and primary ambition. And the Lord, for, he says, for the first five years, all I want you to do is love the flock. And I'm like, awesome, let's just do that. So when people ask, well, what's your five-year plan? I'm like, I want to love this flock and be more like Jesus. Yeah, but practically. I'm like, the practical stuff will happen. when I'll get it when I get my orders. But wouldn't it be, I guarantee you this, the Lord is not going to change what's happening to do that. He's going to only add to it. That's the way it works. Because what the Lord's looking for is a flock that loves Him first, loves each other second, and can't wait to serve as a result. Could you imagine what would happen if we were like that? So that's the first part of this, right? That's the part of where we are representing the duties of the, of the sanctuary, but then also the duties of the Holy of Holies. We're going to make sure that we apply the blood. Man, I want you to know that if you've fallen, there is blood to be applied. The blood of Christ is the only permanent stain remover in the universe. And it doesn't matter what it is. Five abortions, a murder charge, stupid choices, you know... It, physical violence, otherwise drug abuse, helping somebody overdose. Look, I'm not encouraging you to do any of these things. I'm just here to let you know that when the blood of Jesus washes you clean, that it, listen, he washes you clean. I mean, clean as in, as if you never did it in the first place. And some people you are sitting next to right now are actually people who've had such a history. You wouldn't believe it if they told you because of what God has done. I have pastors' wives, beloved, who have gone through unimaginable, and pastors who have gone through unimaginable things that if they told you your story, you'd fall out of the pew right now and say, you lying. But I can say, no, 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 it's true. Because when the Lord makes new, He makes new. He doesn't slap a new coat of paint over an old model. He reinvents. That's why it says whoever is in Christ is a new creation. It doesn't just say whoever came to Christ became a new creation. I am perpetually being made a new creation. And praise God. And you know why? Because, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. We sang it, didn't we? And that's the role of the priest. And then we get to verse 7. And notice it says, you attend to the priesthood at everything at the altar and behind the veil. And here we go again. That altar notices in both cases. Now let me just say, that altar, if we talk about it in the simplest sense, that's the place where man meets God at sacrifice. That's where the blood is applied. That's the beauty of the altar. It's the place where an innocent animal dies for the sins of a rotten person like you or me. And in both cases, God's like, you need to know the gospel needs to be there. People tell us, well, people in Europe don't get saved. And I'm like, well, that's probably because the church doesn't preach the gospel. People get saved when the gospel gets preached because the gospel is the power of salvation. That's kind of like saying, well, you know what? Our website's been down for the last four months. We've finally gotten it up. We have no products on it, but nobody's buying anything. Yeah, strange how that works. Programs don't save people. Clubs don't save people. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes. And if we were simple and honest about it, because it is simple and honest, we would see simple and honest results. So there is the beauty of it. There's our calling. You know what our calling is? I want to give you Jesus. 
you realize that's the one thing that we have here? I want to give you Jesus and show you how Jesus satisfies. I want to give you Jesus and show you how Jesus leads. I want to give you Jesus and show you how he's the answer to every need you have. I want to give you Jesus and show how his blood washes you clean from everything. Because we as miserable, rotten wretches have been washed clean by the blood of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and raised from the dead to give us newness of life. Everything is about Jesus. And the moment we recognize that, it gets so simple for good reason because it is simple. And there is the role of the priest. Before God, I stand before God and I tell Him, Lord, please, I want to stand and recognize the church is in trouble. Not our church, the church in mass. Because we represent still, and we still stand in that dishonor of the priesthood, that's the ministry, and the house, what they think of. I mean, now, let's face it, most of the houses now that were big and beautiful like this, built for the idea of representing God's glory, are now flats or pubs. But I'll be honest with you, they were flats and pubs before that point. They just weren't God's house. Well, hear me out. Because with that, God promises four beautiful gifts. But are you willing to stand with me and say, you know what, Lord? Then make me an agent of change. Make me an agent of change to change with the way. Look at not to become friends with people who hate God in the sense that I'm going to jink out and like twist Jesus until he's just likable by everybody, but to represent the honest Jesus. So the only people that have a problem with Christianity are the people who have a problem with Christ. Because those same people sooner or later just may turn to you and say, and I've learned this, man, people can get in your face and crawl in your grill and say, I hate your God and oh, I don't want to hear anything about it. And then their mom gets cancer and you're the first one they call. So don't even be talking to me about how you hate my God. He just doesn't fit in your plan until you need him. Until you really should recognize him. So you ready to see what God gives us? Thank you, that was very welcoming. Are you ready to see what God gives us? Okay, because you know, this is... This, Strangely enough, this becomes a dialogue at times. Here's the first of them. It says in verses 1 through 6 then, verse 6, Behold, I have given or taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They're a gift to you. Do you see that in verse 6? It tells us in verse 2, look, grab the rest of those, that tribe of Levi, and they're actually going to be serving you. They're going to come alongside you and help in the work of the ministry. And in the work of that ministry, I'm going to bring up guys that are going to do the grunt work as well. They're going to carry stuff. Hey, listen, being a priest was physical work. I mean, it's funny because every time they paint a priest, it's sort of like something out of the Renaissance. You know what I mean? They're like guys that maybe could play, with all due respect, could play football, but certainly couldn't play rugby. That makes sense? They're all like, you know, they're the kind of guys that could snap them like a twig. But these are guys that had to like move around oxen and carry sheep and slaughter stuff and carry like beams. Now, what kind of guys do you want to do that? All of a sudden, I start to think the Levites were a little bit more like, hello, I've come to carry something. I think, oh, that must be a Levite. And here's the thing. He's like, look, I'm going to bring some guys up. And listen, I'm going to bring some guys up. And with those guys and gals, they're going to be able to serve with you to make it so that you're not doing everything, man. Do what I call you to. They'll do what I've called them to. And this whole thing comes down really nicely. And so here's, strangely enough, this is how it starts. And it makes sense to me. The first thing that God gives us of the four is co-laborers. But please hear me. If we're going to serve the way God intended for us to serve, we've got to start by falling in love with the flock. Because if we don't fall in love with the flock, we'll fall in love with ministry for a different reason. 
You see, we could fall in love with ministry because, to be honest, there's a lot of guys I know that if we're really honest, I mean, we're just nakedly honest before people. There are some pastors that were not popular ever before they became a pastor. And all of a sudden, they started sharing something. And as they started sharing something, something really crazy started to happen. People, like, listened to them. And no one's ever listened to them before. And then they started, you know, ministering. And people were like, oh, my goodness, you're so gifted. And, you're so and nobody's ever said anything cool about them before. That's a pretty awesome thing. But the problem is, when that kind of thing gets into the balance, they're on, they're on like a suicide watch because they think they might lose the ministry. But they, but they always do it for the purpose of making sure someone pats them on the back. And if it's one of those days where no one really says, that was a great message, or, wow, you did so good, they kind of walk away going, wow, what am I doing here? And they've got their resignation sitting in their desk. Is that what you want? Hey, when we talk about people that want to be involved in youth leadership, especially in regards to the areas of, like, teen youth leadership, one of the first questions I ask is, what were you like in school? Because if you're like, well, I was never liked, and that kind of thing. I know, I know if you watch, now not everyone's like this, but if you watch guys that are like, they weren't real popular, the girls didn't like them, and now all of a sudden they're seeing, they're, they're like overseeing girls like that are two years younger than they are now, or three years younger than, it is amazing how easy it is to kind of do whatever you can to get them to like you instead of to lead them like you're supposed to. And then you've got to constantly keep your eye on them. What are you doing? Does that make sense? Now this is the reason I say that is that, listen, co-laborers are a gift from God. That's what he just told us. They are a gift. But the gift starts the moment when you start falling in love with the Lord and he opens your eyes and you start looking and you're going, oh my goodness, I actually really love you guys. Now, for some of you, maybe you're kind of like a give me a hug, you're kind of a teddy bear and kind of Barney by nature, but I'm not one of those people. I was kind of like, you know, I was the other guy that like blew people up and like punched things and stuff. That was the guy I was. So when I actually kind of looked at him, oh my goodness, I, I like love you guys. That's really a beautiful revelation. And when that happens, it's like, now I just want to serve you and bring you closer to the Lord. Because that's real honest love is what that is. And understand, that's where he starts this. And it makes sense of the four things, that's where he starts. He's like, I want you to realize... If you're going to serve me and take the calling I've placed specifically, there is a Nathan-shaped calling that Jay cannot do, but Nathan can. There is a Lucas-style calling that Jay can't do either, but Jay kind of hangs out with him, so they're kind of like Batman and Robin. And it's like, and so Jay, the cool thing is watching Jay become Jay, because otherwise he'd be like, hey, bro, man, you need to do this, man. And then he like, makes, like, tries to make coffee to share Jesus. But that's Lucas's deal. And I love the fact that we're so diverse as a fellowship that we actually get to watch people be really, really strange to us, but really, really awesome in Christ. I mean, let's face it. The fact that we get to serve the Lord is a gift. But when we start with this, he's like, look, you need to recognize the gift of the person next to you. Okay, so I'm not the one who normally says this kind of stuff, but I just want you to try this one. Just look at, it, look at the person next to you and just go, you're a gift. And then turn to that side. You're a gift. And listen to them say, go ahead, just do it. Just as... Be wonky with me. Doesn't it just feel so warm and fuzzy in here all of a sudden? And you're like, oh my goodness, we're, we're British. We shouldn't be talking like this except to our animals. But look at the last half of verse 7. Because he doesn't just say, therefore, you and your sons will attend to the priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil. You shall serve. But it also says this. And I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. 
Okay, the second thing, the first is the co-laborer. So what's the first? Thank you for the three of you. Let's try it again. What's the first? Thank you. That was some of you more. Here's the second, the calling. The calling that God's actually given you is a gift. See, understand this. God could have, the moment you said yes to him, he could have just killed you and let you go to heaven. He could have, to be honest, he could have, the moment you've said, and if you haven't said yes to Jesus, please hear me. Let me lay that out simply. We all start in the same place. We're selfish, self-driven, self-centered, self-motivated, self-exalting people. You see what the key word and theme is there? Yeah, you got it? And we read the Self magazine, and we can't watch, and the Self channel all about you. You know why we wouldn't watch the Self channel? Because it wouldn't be about us, right? I don't want to hear about yourself. I want to hear about myself and what you think of myself. Well, and so, but somewhere down the line, all of that selfish ambition hurts other people, pushes other people away, isolates and insulates. And what happens is it stands as an affront and a flick of your nose to the God who created you to be with him. And as a result of that, someone's got to pay for that crime. And that crime is paid by somebody taking the punishment. And God allowed this provision. Either you could spend eternity separate from him or... Someone perfect is willing to step in your way and take the punishment for you. He would allow that. Well, the problem is that disqualifies the rest of us. So the only person left is God, and God knows it, and therefore sends his son to die on the cross so that the perfect one could stand in your place. So that's why, by the way, I don't believe in every religion, because there's only one that's been perfect. None of those other guys ever were, and no one ever volunteered to die for me but Jesus. Thank you very much. It was the same guy. Wouldn't have been awful if Jesus was perfect but didn't volunteer, but somebody was imperfect and volunteered? I would have been doomed. But the one who was perfect volunteered. Jesus died on the cross. And how do I know it was enough? He rose again from the grave and now offers me a brand new life. And then he invites me to simply say yes to that offer. Will you allow him to pay for your crimes, your sins, and then allow him to be the Lord of your life? thus confessing him as Lord and Savior. If that is the case then you've said yes to him. And that's, by the way, the, simple, the simplicity of the gospel. And you'll have that choice before this is done. But the moment you do say yes to him, then he places this call on your life and he starts developing this beautiful thing. And he has this unique calling to each of us now to be used by him. And here's the cool thing. God could have, especially with someone like me or someone like Paul from Scripture in the New Testament, he could have said, well, now that you're saved, I'm going to stick you on a deserted island so you can't hurt anyone else until you die. And I'll be honest. That would have been more than enough grace for me. I'll be honest. I would have been like, I fully understand. I am a loaded pistol. I understand you're saving the rest of the world by removing me. And I'll be honest. I wouldn't have argued with God a moment for it. But he had different plans. When God called Abraham back in the book of Genesis chapter 12, and he says, you know, we like some of that because it says, you know, go leave your family and go and leave your homeland to a place that I will show you. Yeah, we kind of get all of that, right? And it says, by the way, and then we go, we almost skip right to the, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, right? Which is, by the way, I think the goofiest reason why you would ever want to get behind someone because it sounds so selfish. Hey, Jay, I just want to love you because God promised if I'm nice to you, he'll give me good stuff. How do I think that makes Jay feel? But it says right in between that, and you will be a blessing. And I'll be honest, of all the things I read, that's the one that yanks the brakes on me. I'm like, that's cool, that's cool. Whoa, that is really cool. Especially for a guy that knows what it's like to walk in a room and make it entirely worse. And I'm not being like falsely humble or any of that. I'm just being honest. Like, you know how I made the room better? When I left. 
And to be able to know that the Lord can bring me into a situation and things could get better and I get to be a part of that? That's insane. The idea of, of being from, instead of now being this thing, this thing that sucked life out of people, now to becoming a fountain because Christ lives in me so that others can come and drink, that's crazy good. And so understand, the calling on your life is God saying, I want to take you from where you were and use you to change the world. I mean, to touch lives permanently. Permanently. That eternity will be affected because I put you on the planet. And I can tell you, some of you I've known for a very short period of time and God's used you in radical ways. I don't think I've told many of you. These young ladies, for instance, we've known them from back, they're back from the days of Cali. And I'll tell you what, the, what the Lord's done through them, they are very unique and bespoke in their calling. And yet it's amazing what God does. And here we all are sitting going, you know what? When was the last time you actually thanked the Lord that he put a calling on your life? Or are you busy running from it still? Are you busy saying, you know what, God? I, isn't it good enough just like to, I don't know, not go to hell? God's like, no way. Why would I save you to be with me and then not use you to bring others to that purpose? How selfish would that be? It's like, listen, when God pulls you out of the water, he makes you a lifeguard because you know how beautiful it is to be rescued. Isn't that cool? Hey, but we're halfway there. That's only two of the four, right? Hey, so what's the first one? I'm, I'm sorry, what was the first one? Calibers. Wow, we really... What's the second? The calling. So what's the first one? What's the second? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. By the way, for what it's worth, Paul thought that way. First Timothy 1.12, it says, and I think, listen, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because He counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, when Paul speaks and he's saying goodbye to some people that he really loves, Ephesians elders and love, he says, he says, and now I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing, by the way, the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Because God gave me a gift and it was the ministry and I'm going to finish well in it. When you watch the football match and America's ahead and they decide to go and pick daisies and have a picnic with Ronaldo still out on the field 15 seconds left. I'm not bitter. Huh. Okay. Anyways, let's move on. <laughs> but that's what happens. I want to finish well. Everyone's like, we got this. We got this nailed. It's like, well, then let's nail it better. I can guarantee you when we're done, we'll be done. And there won't be any argument left. In that last breath, I want to end. I want to leave this thing, making my last breath my best. How about you? I don't want to look and go, oh, you know, you should have killed me 15 years ago, like Hezekiah. Verses eight now through 19, we go into our third one. The first, if you remember, was co-labors. Thank you. The second was the calling. Verse eight. 
the Lord spoke to Aaron and he said, Here I myself have given you charge of my heave offerings and the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and to your sons as an ordinance forever. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering, every sin offering, every trespass offering, which they render to me shall be most holy for you and your sons. In a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be most holy or holy to you. I'm sorry. This is also yours. The heave offering of the gift with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. Everyone who is clean in your house made it the best of the oil and the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruits, which they offer to the Lord. I have given them to you. Whatever first ripe fruit of their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of a man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of an unclean animal you shall redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuations, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. Of course, you probably knew that. The firstborn of the cow, firstborn of the sheep, firstborn of the goat, you shall not redeem. In other words, you actually sacrifice it because it's holy. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm starting to hear one minute. God says, don't, you know, these things you actually have to sacrifice because they're holy. Now, a man, on the other hand, you have to redeem. Mm, did you get the kind of inference on all that? Light bulb. <laughs> that was well timed. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, burn their fat as an offering made by fires, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And all their flesh shall be yours, just as the wave breast and the right thigh are yours. All the heave offering of the holy things shall be the children of Israel, I'm sorry, shall the, which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters as an ordinance forever. It's a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Now look at The Lord not only gives in, as a gift co-laborers, and not only gives as a gift the calling, but the third is the Lord also gives capital. He gives the capital, but please understand, he gives the capital or the resources that are necessary to accomplish his mission, not yours. And that's where the problem is. The problem is I've set a standard, and my standard is comfort. And God's like, look at I've never promised you a comfortable life. I've promised you to be comfortable in this life by finding comfort in me. But he says, in this world you'll have much tribulation, but be of good cheer of overcome the world. Jesus promised that the trials would come. He told us that even the house that was built on the rock would still suffer the storms. The winds would still blow. The water would still rise. The only difference was not the absence of the storms. The difference was that the house wouldn't fall. That's the difference. So please understand. Now what he says is simple here. And what he says is, look at, you know that there's going to be a responsibility of the people and they're going to bring their sacrifices. And because the children are going to bring their sacrifices, that's going to be your meal. Now think about that. What that means is if the people are unfaithful, then the priests don't eat. Isn't that what that means? Consider that. Now look at Perhaps even those who have actually said, you know, we really want to build this giant megaplex, or we really have this great idea, and what we really want to do is we want to buy an island somewhere to have retreats, or whatever it is, and they've laid it before you. But first and foremost, please hear me, because two things play out of this. One is that God wants to make sure that the priests can spend their time focusing on the work of God. Now, that makes sense. 
But on the other side of it, he tells us in all of this that there is a, a challenge in all of that for the priests to make sure that they're feeding the people and doing the work they're supposed to be doing and what the people do as well is that in their sacrifice and surrender to God, everybody gets blessed and everybody gets to do what they're called to. He calls it here, notice, a covenant of salt. In Matthew 5:13, you're perfectly familiar with it. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And he says, if the salt loses its flavor, what good is it? It is actually meant to be trampled out and thrown, among, uh, thrown out and trampled among men. Now understand, when you got salt in those days, you didn't get in a cute little shaker or even a little bit more posh where you got to grind it in front of you, you know. I mean, we have like pink Himalayan salt. Can it be more yuppie than that? It's like I feel like I should wax a mustache when I turn it. But, but it's, you know, it's lovely, and I don't know, it's Himalayan, and I think of Jay when I turn it, whatever. But and it's pink, so I think of Ruthie. But in all of that, it's in those days, you got it as a chunk of something, and it was like part dirt and part salt, and you chipped off the salt part, and the whole thing was called salt. You bought it as this thing. But in the end of it all, you know, once you chipped off the salt, what was left was the dirt, and what you did with the end of it all, you threw it out on the street so people could step on it, is with the rest of the dirt. And he says, man, what you think you are is salt, but really all you are is just dirt at this point. You're so full of dirt. It's all that's left to be done. But salt had this importance about it because it talked about that which was transcending. As a matter of fact, you're probably familiar with the fact that Romans were often paid with salt because it was the one preservative that was actually readily available. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the term salarium or salary from is you paid him with salt. As a matter of fact, we even say to this day, well, that man isn't even worth his salt. In other words, he wouldn't be worth what you'd pay for him. That plumber isn't worth his salt. He charges this much, but he does not give you what he should be, you know, what you're paying for. And if I get this idea that salt speaks about the transcending or the eternal, it all makes sense when I get to Colossians 4, 6, when it says, let your speech always be full of, of grace, seasoned with salt. Christians, residents and citizens of heaven, let there be a hint of heaven in everything you say. Let there be, everything should have a little bit of salt in it. And here's the cool thing. They say, well, salt makes people thirsty. Can I say that when I speak coming from the perspective of heaven, it does make people thirsty. And it makes them thirsty for something they never had, the living water of life. So listen in this. It says in 1 Corinthians 9.14 that it says, and hear me on this, even so the Lord has commanded. Now you're aware that when the Lord commands something, there's not much debate over it or there shouldn't be any. That the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, this inequity sort of begs the issue on this, and we will, and we'll get to our fourth one in a moment. In the end of it all, the Lord is going to provide the capital in whatever way he wants to. You just have the privilege of being a part of it if you like. That's the point. So hear me out, because perhaps you've been in one of those places where you know that every time you're going to be sitting in church, they're going to be spending 40 of the 45 minutes telling you about what it means to give. Well, we only approach it when it's in Scripture. And well, if you'll pardon me, if this is the only time you've been here, it's in Scripture, so I have to address it. So let me make it clear. People will say tithe is an Old Testament term, and I'll agree with you. Tithe is just a Hebrew word for tenth. Those who lived under the governance of the church and lived under its benefits were responsible to give a tenth of everything they had in a Christian, or I should say in this case, in a Jewish community. That was the standard. 
But they also gave what was called the temple tax. The temple tax was specifically for the upkeep of the temple. That was to pay rent, in essence, if you think about it, or make sure the building doesn't fall apart. But they also gave the rest. And when they gave a tenth, it wasn't like what they did is all the money they made, they just gave a tenth of. If they planted a garden, they gave a tenth of that. Now, please hear me. I'm not telling you this because I'm telling you you need to give to the church. We'll see here in a moment. I'm called to do the same, and we do. Americans pay our pay for us to be here, and we take a tenth of what they give us and give to the church. I don't know if you know that. That isn't like, check us out, we're awesome. I'm awesome because Jesus died for me on the cross. You're awesome the same for the same reason. But I'm just trying to be obedient. This is what Scripture says. You'll say, well, that's the Old Testament. Can I just warn you? Jesus upped everything in the New Testament. You're aware of that, right? He didn't say, what I want is for you to spend 10% of it somewhere and then spend the other 90% on your vices. God says, I'm not blessed by that. God's not looking here for you to try to find loopholes and pay your way into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Jesus paid the price. You'll never be able to afford it, nor will I. You just have the opportunity to invest in eternity. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you now see the benefit of storing your treasures in heaven. So here it is in its simplest sense. And I could give a lengthy thing, but I won't. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, when Paul speaks about receiving the, the giving of others, he says it this way. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You've probably heard that a million times if you've been to places that try to fleece you for it. But then do they tell you this? So then let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. You need to recognize this is the way it is. God puts something on your heart, do it. That's the way it should be. It all should be his. Where it goes should be his direction, not yours. Mine too, by the way. And that may mean taking a homeless person out to dinner. It may mean actually helping somebody get a place to live. It may mean buying someone's shoes. Whatever it is, the cool thing is, it's his resources now because he gave them to you. And you're just available for it. Dare I say, he may say, well then sponsor a missionary or help, you know, give to the church or whatever it is. But the good news is, invest where there's fruit. Wouldn't that make sense? Why would you invest in something that bears forth nothing? But you give not grudgingly, which means, oh, I have to give again. Oh, I hate this. God's not blessed by that. Don't expect God to go, oh, that was really sweet. God knows better than that. And my favorite in this is not of necessity. Do you know what that means? That means if someone goes, I know we've been telling you that if you mail in your check of faith, a hundredfold will come back to you. So you, you send in your seed faith money. Send in a thousand, you're going to get a hundred thousand and buy that Bentley. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you are. And then they say, oh, but you need to give to us because we're about to go off the air. If you don't give to us, oh, have fun staring at that television set because we're not going to be on it anymore. If you don't give, harp seals will die in another country. Children will live without families. You see it all over the, you see it all over the trains, don't you? Little Jimmy has no food to eat. Text, feed Jimmy. doesn't tell you that they're going to give the money to Jimmy. just says, give me money. Oh, this thing's happening. Give me some money. Now, maybe they will. But hear me out. The moment a person says, we're going to lock the doors because I just know, I know in my heart, we've got a thousand dollar, we've got a thousand pound champion in this room right now. And I, you just know someone right now, you just know that it's you. And you can, look at that's called necessity. God says, don't do it. 
hey, look, if a guy really believed that if you mailed a check in faith, you got a hundredfold back and they can't pay their bills, why don't they mail you a check, get a hundredfold back, and pay their bills? Makes sense to me. Here, understand, he says, look, love God, give him everything, and then let him spend it as he likes. Is that fair enough? Love God, give him everything, let him spend it as he likes. That includes your energy, your time, your resources, your dreams, your talents. That's all part of your calling. That's the beauty. And you're like, you know what? In the currency of God, the highest denomination is you. You are actually the most valuable thing. The rest of it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. So hear me on this. Back to our point in our text. He gives what is necessary. The blessing is, and let's face it, if you've ever been there, when somebody says, I don't know why I'm doing this, the Lord just told me to give this to you, and it was the exact amount as rent, you hear that story all the time because it's true. I have a couple of those myself. And the cool thing is that person gets to tell that too because they're like, I don't know. I just said, I don't even know the guy. I just said that. And it was like so cool. And here's the cool thing. If you're available, the Lord will tell you. You're aware of this, right? If you love the Lord, he's going to tell you to do crazy things. So you can be able to say, let me show you how God did something really cool and crazy. Because a miracle is crazy, to be honest. So listen. The first gift, co-laborers, right? The second gift, the calling. The third gift, the capital. Oh, but this is where it just gets beautiful. Let's close it around now. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Arun, by the way, it's important to note, that you actually don't see a lot of times where God actually speaks just to Aaron. Are you aware of that, right? When he actually said, go meet your brother, Moses, he's coming actually back from Midian. That was one time when he spoke to him. Actually, this is about the third, is this chapter. The second time, by the way, when his sons died from being fried in Leviticus 10, and he said, by the way, don't drink and get drunk before you're actually going to go do the service of a priest. And then here, in this chapter. He says, look, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. And this is what makes being a Christian just banging. Oh, I love the co-laborers. I love the fellowship. I love the camaraderie we have with it. I love being able to be used by God. And I'll be honest to tell you, I have never for a second not loved what I get to do. It's been 25 years and I've never not loved it. I love serving the Lord. I love that he gives what is necessary to accomplish his will. And whether that be in the resources of finances or whether that be in the resources of his Holy Spirit to do what I cannot humanly do. He knows what he's doing. But of all the gifts, the fourth is communion. Communion with my God. Whether you've been told or not, you were not created to serve God. You were not created to worship God. You were not created to glorify God. You were created to be with God. The rest is the product of it. created you to be with him and because we're sinners he so loved us he died on the cross to pay our price so he could be we could be reconciled and restored to him do you get it you see the greatest gift in all of this is that it's him hey before i became a christian the last thing in the world i wanted to be was a christian 
And I read every other book I could, trying to find something I could jive with. It was scary. Every one of them, it, what it became clear was they were all kind of the same thing. You initiated, something else judged at the end, hopefully was enough, and you didn't even win the God. What you got in the end of all was rivers of wine or, or greater consciousness, or you wouldn't be a cockroach or something. But you never really got to be with the one who created you. And then you read the Bible and you're like, oh my goodness, you're in love with me in chapter one, and you've been chasing after me ever since. There's only two religions in the world. The one where God made man and he's been chasing after him. He initiates, we choose. Or the one where we try to perform and hopefully something else is beneficial in the end and it's in our favor. Which one do you want? One's a gift. Praise God, it's the truth. David knew it. Psalm 16:5 says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 142, 5, I cried out to the Lord. I said, Oh, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Even in Lamentations, a song, a sad, sad song. 324, it says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. And Ezekiel 44:28, God actually says, It shall be in regards to their inheritance, speaking of the same, that I am their inheritance. In 1 Corinthians 3:23, it says it this way simply, You are Christ's and Christ is God's. But perhaps one of my favorites is when we get to the book of Revelation. We saw how it began. God made man. Have you ever thought about it? God made man on which day of the week? I mean, of the numbers? First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Which day of the week did God make man on? It should be a simple one, I hope. The sixth day. What happened on the seventh day? God rested. Do you realize what happened? God made man on the sixth day, and on the seventh day, he took the day off to be with him. Do you get that? That's how it started. You know what ends? Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. When he speaks to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2.26, he says, And he who overcomes keeps my works to the end. I'll give him power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. They will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. As I've received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. And you go, yippee skippy, I get the morning star. What's that? Then we get to the end of the book, Revelation 22.16, and Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He says, if you're willing to overcome with me, if you're willing to walk with me through this thing, and I promise I'll be with you through the whole thing, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll carry you, I'll strengthen you, I'll equip you. There will be challenges, but I'll show you victory between them. And at the end of it all, you get the bright and morning star. And you're like, wow, and you stand before God, and you're like, what is it? And Jesus says, it's me. You get me. That's what you get. That's what makes it so wonderful. As I get communion with Him from beginning to end, and at the end of it all, the mirror gets removed, the dim mirror, the, the, the window that looks dim gets removed, and I just say, oh, that's what you look like. You're nothing like those surfer pictures. I'll just say that on my face. <laughs> so let's close this out. 21, verse that he says, Behold, I've given the children of Levi all the tithes of Israel as an inheritance and return for the work of the, the, which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Are you holding out on God? I'm not telling you, are you holding out on the church? Are you holding out on God? Is there something you're saying, God, you can't touch that that's mine? Really, and he's your Lord. How does that work? Verse 22. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall bear their iniquity. It is the statute forever throughout your generations. 
that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. Hey, stop trying to get from the world what only God can give. Live like the priest he called you to be. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering, that's, by the way, an offering of praise to the Lord, I've given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I've said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, Speak, saying, thus say, uh, speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes in which I've given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it, to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. You give a tenth of your tenth. There you go. Nobody's exempt. The guy who's serving should be giving as well. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were grain of the threshing floor, the fullness of the winepress. Thus you shall have a heave offering to the Lord of your tithes in which you receive from the children of Israel, and you shall give the Lord heave offering from it. Heave offering, remember, is an offering of praise to Aaron the priest. Of all your gifts, you shall offer up every heap offering due to the Lord from the best of them, consecrated part of them. In other words, God says, I want the best of your best. Therefore, you shall say to them, when you've lifted up the best of it, that the rest shall be accounted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and of the produce of the winepress. You may eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for the work in the tabernacle of meeting. You shall... Bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel lest you die. This is a matter of life and death. So this is how it closes. He says, look, when people give things, it's going to be called a Corbin or it's going to be dedicated to you. The problem is that the religious leaders took that and basically said, well, if it's going to be mine anyways, I can have everything in my house dedicated to the Lord and so I get to keep it. Isn't that crazy? But we do the same thing. And Jesus says, you break the commandments doing that. Your parents need a couch and you won't give it to them because you say it's dedicated to the Lord. How is it dedicated to me and it's not helping anyone? Let me say that again. How is it dedicated to me and it's not helping anyone? We say, well, I can't give that to the Lord. Oh, this is God's car. Really, are you helping people with it? This is God's house. Really, are you blessing people with it? Well, this is God's thing. Well, is, are you blessing people with it? And I'm not talking about blessing like you just make them happy and you make a girl like you guys. What I'm saying, or a guy like you ladies, what I'm saying is, are you bringing people closer to the Lord with it? Because that's what he intends. That's the point of it. And he goes, look, and in the end of it all, everything that I give you that's to bless you, and whether that be the co-laborers, or whether that be in that sense then, you know, think about it, whether that be the, the, the collateral that he gives, the capital that he gives us here, the sweet communion that he gives, he goes, I want you to take that now and turn it on others and bless other people with it. That's the point here. He goes, please listen, your calling is a gift. And it is such a gift that only has your name on it. And listen, don't be one of those people that stand before God and God says, let's show what you could have won. And he opens up this gift that you would have had and said, this was going to be used to transform the world. But you were too busy hiding it in a handkerchief and burying it in the ground. God doesn't want that. And listen, no matter what excuse you want to play out, it isn't going to work. You can't say, but I was too busy with, or this thing was too pressing, or whatever. Look at it. If God gives, he puts it in order, and he knows how to solve everything in its rightful time. If he puts something on your heart, be about his business. Everything else works out. So you don't tell me, well, look at God, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. The fact that you're actually trying to tell God that tells you where you're at. What the Lord really wants is he wants to use you. He wants to use you to touch lives in such a way that, it, that nobody else can. And there are people, beloved, you can speak to that I can't. 
and perhaps the other way around. As we go to prayer now, we shut this. Let me ask you, are you thankful? Are you thankful that He's put a calling on your life or are you still running from it? And you're like, well, I don't even know what it is. You know what? Cool. Then let me just say this. Fall in love with God. You'll find yourself doing it. That's the beauty. It happens supernaturally, naturally. It's a matter of the overflow. And you can't overflow without being attached. A hose doesn't run water without being attached to the tap. You're the vessel. I'm the vessel. That's the beauty of it. Do you realize that God has something for you? And if you simply live a life that says, here I am, I'm available, but I recognize in that that I'm going to actually not lie and I'm not going to redefine things. People say, are you a Christian? You go, no, I'm a believer or I'm a something else. I'm new vintage, whatever the heck that means, right? I'm the new old. Does that really work? You know, no, no, I am a Christian. Are you a fundamentalist? Well, what does that mean? That I believe in the fundamentals of Scripture? Yes, I absolutely believe in the fundamentals. I believe in all of the Scripture. Call me whatever you want to call me for that. But I believe in that. People are actually looking for someone with a backbone. What if we had it? Should we be more than anyone, the people who are? And I want to challenge you with me today. Oh, God, that we would embrace whatever it is. And if we lived a life of just going, I love you. I'm yours. My stuff's yours. Everything that's associated with me is yours. For you to spend whatever way you want, however you want, lead me in that. What do you think would happen? And what happened was God would start a revolution and we'd get to be a part of it. We wouldn't be the person filming it. We'd be the person that has gunpowder on our hands. How beautiful would that be? I mean, metaphorically here. Let me make that clear. So as we go to prayer, first of all, have you said yes to the gift of Jesus? Have you said yes to his offer to wash you clean by his blood, to present you innocent before him in love and glory, and to make you a new creation? If you haven't, I'm going to give you that choice now. If you have said yes, then it is a life now of surrender and abandon, isn't it? And I want to invite you to join me in that adventure. Because as we do, who knows where he'll take us. All I know is it's going to be good. Will you pray with me, please? God, thank you so much for the beauty of this text. Thank you so much for this gorgeous chapter. And thank you that you said, I've given you people. They're a blessing. They're a gift to you. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this fellowship. What a gift. Thank you, Lord, that you constantly show your grace by the people you put in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you've given us the capital is necessary. And whether that is your Holy Spirit to do through us what we can't, whether it is the material resources that are necessary or the spiritual resources that are necessary, Lord, thank you that it is your job to supply. It is our job to be available. And you tell us who goes to, the, who goes to war at his own expense. Thank you that it's your army, it's your life that we get to live now to seek, to serve, to save the least, the last, the lost. Thank you. Oh God, get us excited, driven, Lord, by the privilege of knowing that we get to go out there and watch lives transform from darkness to the power of light, from, from the utter captivity to, to deepen your arms, to the dead rising embracing this beautiful life you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that you not only send co-laborers as a gift, and you not only give 
the capital as a gift, but first and foremost, that you give us communion with you. We recognize because it's a gift, it's nothing I could ever deserve or it would never be a gift. And that's why you call it grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are our reward. And I love you so much, Lord, and I thank you. And I pray right now, Lord, that for every person who has said yes to you, including me, Lord, that we would just have that abandon in our heart and say, Lord, here I am. I am yours to spend however you see fit. And anything that's associated with me is now in your hands to use in whatever way you want. It is dedicated to you. May my life be a heave offering now. May, as a response to all you give me, now I know my responsibilities to turn it to praise, and for that I say thank you. And with that said, if there be any or many in this room who have not said yes to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, let now be the moment when you do. And I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen intently. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to give a confident, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. That's no surprise to either of us. And you as a righteous judge punish wrong. But I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all my wrong could be punished properly. And then he rose again to offer me new life where his blood washes me clean. So for that... I say yes. You've given me the responsibility of that choice. You've done the work. And I say yes. I say yes to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sins. I say yes for His resurrection three days later, just as Your Scripture had promised, just so that He could be my Lord now. And I give You myself and say, be the architect of my reinvention. Make me Yours completely. I belong to You now, Jesus, in Your name. And if you agree, I ask You to say Amen.